I'm Camilla Jansen and I'm a GP working in the New Forest in Hampshire and I've been working in conjunction with the Wessex LMC to bring you some education and support to us GPs to safely assess and manage coronavirus patients in the community. As we are all aware we're dealing with a new virus with a lack of historical data and knowledge and this presents ongoing challenges and we are all continually adapting and learning. So today I wanted to bring together what we've learned so far by drawing on the expertise from our COVID community teams as well as some information gleaned from our secondary care colleagues. The aim is to improve the confidence and consistency among healthcare workers when assessing and managing coronavirus patients in the community, be this remotely or face-to-face. -face. So today we are very lucky to have two GPs, Dr Sarah Kay and Dr Caroline Warren, and they are the national GP leads for the COVID Clinical Assessment Service, CCAS. And CCAS works with 111 to remotely assess, manage and impose patients presenting to 111 with COVID sounding symptoms. So thank you for preparing this presentation for us today and I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. And so I'll hand over to Sarah and Caroline. Thanks very much, Camilla. Um, I'll introduce myself first of all, and uh, I'm a GP from Wessex. I'm based as a portfolio GP in West Dorset. I started to work for the COVID Clinical Assessment Service as a call-taking GP back in April of last year. Um, I then joined the audit team and um, as part of the quality assurance and started as the joint GP lead along with Caroline in November. Over to you, Caroline. Hi, I'm Caroline Warren. I'm a GP. I work between London and uh, New Forest in Hampshire and um, I've been working with the Coronavirus Clinical Assessment Service since May this year, um, taking telephone triage calls, um, auditing and then eventually as, as one of the joint medical leads. So we just wanted to introduce, first of all, a little about the CCAS service because it's a little bit of a, of a hidden jewel um, in the crown of the NHS. We have um, been a completely new service, um, which was begun in March 2020, and it's comprised of current GPs and returner GPs. So by returner GPs, we mean people who had either stepped away from clinical practice and off the performance list or who had retired and come back in response to the government's um, request for assistance through the pandemic. The we, call to arms. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it was enormously challenging to set up a team um, that is entirely remote to the extent that Caroline and I have never met face to face. So we're working with a technical team that is entirely remote. Um, all of our GPs are working using Adastra operating software, which is, um, as some of you may know, a frequently used um, out of hours system. Um, and I've put um, a little bit more information at the bottom for anyone who's interested potentially in joining our service. We are still recruiting GPs. Caroline, is there anything you'd like to add here? No, just to say that, you know, we're over 600 GPs, we work 24-7 um, and what happens is when, as, as you know, the previous guidelines were that people with COVID or coronavirus symptoms would call either 111 or they go on to 111 online um, and once they've come through there, the whole patient journey involves them going through a triage process with the 111 call handler and those that are deemed very unwell who need an ambulance, an ambulance would be called for them straight away. 
those who were just wanting information about testing or something, they would redirect it to 119 and the online um, access for testing website. Um, and then those that were in the sort of the middle core who needed a bit of a further assessment are, divide, are diverted into the coronavirus clinical assessment service, the GP service. So we will see people, um, and this is a, a, a we're still technically dealing with cohort two. So we're providing not just telephone triage, but a telephone assessment of a patient with coronavirus um, symptoms. Um, making that final decision, do they need to be seen face to face, either in a hot tub or in the emergency department? Do they need an ambulance and actually need to go straight to hospital? Or can they be safely managed at home in, in, the, uh, in the community um, with access to their GP and possibly now involved in the new COVID oximetry at home services that are setting up nationally? So we're aware that whilst many of you may have been dealing with um, frequent COVID cases, the way that some PCNs have organised themselves with hot hubs may mean that some GPs have become very specialised in dealing with COVID and other GPs may not actually have, have had quite so much experience. Um, in addition, there may be GPs, for example, who've come back off maternity leave and who haven't worked during wave one and two of COVID. So we wanted to make sure that we covered all the bases and shared some of our experiences from dealing with a lot of, of phone calls that are COVID related over the phones through the national service. So um, this chart um, is quite a useful one, I think, just to represent how diverse the symptoms are of COVID. So the, the key symptoms, as you know, are the fever, the cough and the anosmia, but actually we certainly hear a picture that is far more mixed than that over the phone lines. And um, the other reason that this diagram is useful because it quite nice, nicely graphically represents how different people um, of different age groups seem to have a different um, spread of their symptoms. So for example, you can see that fatigue in the over 65s um, is 82% of the time, whereas actually in the under 18s, fatigue is much um, less obvious as a symptom. Again, headache is particularly prominent in the under 18s, but much less so in the other groups. So I think that this just shows how, uh, how heterogeneous an illness it is. And that can make it really quite challenging because it overlaps with lots of other different illnesses that, that also had, had occurred pre-COVID um, that we would deal with over the phone. And I think that was it was a real challenge, certainly during the quieter times and, and over September when we had the rise in children with respiratory symptoms that we get every year. Um, trying to tell them and say whether they were COVID or not was extremely challenging. Um, sometimes and a lot of GPs I've talked to within the service feel that anecdotally, quite often there's that telltale stomach upset or slight bit of diarrhea just a few days before they develop those upper respiratory tract symptoms. Um, and in the times when um, we were assessing and, and the COVID, um, we were saying the COVID testing used to have a negative, possible negative um, results, false negative results. Um, we'd often use subtle signs like that or the presence of the headache um, with the respiratory symptoms um, to help give us a clue as to whether we thought actually this was a high pretest probability of COVID as opposed to others with straightforward upper respiratory tra tract and symptoms. And this would we'd use these sort of things to try and guide our patients as to whether they could how they would need to interpret the results. Now we're in the second wave, fully deeply within the second wave. 
the majority of the patients that we're finding that are coming through to us have already had their COVID test. Um, they're positive and they're tending to call us when they're reaching sort of day five or six, when they're saying, actually, I'm beginning to feel really unwell now. Thanks, Caroline. I think that um, I've certainly noticed patterns when taking calls over the phone that some people seem to have classic upper respiratory COVID, which where cough features strongly, but other people have more of a sort of systemic, um, I would say more of a GI focused COVID actually, um, with the stomach upset, myalgia, um, maybe temperatures, other other symptoms that, that sort of seem to be missing the respiratory part. And I think that that can be a little bit disconcerting if you're expecting everybody to, to have a tick in that, in that cough box that you're expecting them to, to fulfill. And certainly there was a very interesting paper put up by Tim Spector from um, the authors of the scientists involved in the COVID-19 app, um, where it's suggesting that, that, that certain symptoms are not appearing until um, late in the late in the in the sort of progress of the disease. For example, anosmia may not appear until about day four or five. And in fact, when I had COVID, I didn't get it till about a week, ten days into it. And actually, I didn't notice it until someone had turned around and said to me, "Oh, have you lost your sense of smell?" Um, and then I thought I'd just reach for a, a tub of Vicks and realised actually that I couldn't smell it at all. But I hadn't really noticed it before that. Um, so, you know, a lot of these symptoms, patients might not even recognise. So we're going to talk a little bit now about some of the different types of callers who have called our service. Um, so that may be typically when their GPs shut or they've chosen um, to go through the 111 route. And um, you may be getting some of these different types of callers as well. So sometimes people um, are, have quite a low threshold for calling, maybe they're feeling unwell, they just want to talk things through. They may not be particularly unwell, but they just want that advice um, from a health professional. Quite frequently we find that people, um, certainly on the phone lines, are directed to phone us by their boss. And I suppose um, because of the, the um, occupational related need to, to self-isolate, there seems to be a lot of people who, who are being directed to us that way. Um, so that's the first category. Caroline, would you like to talk about the next category? Um, so the next category would be sort of, it'd be more than five days, they're feeling unwell. Um, we're probably going to go into detail a bit more with that in, in, the, in the next slide. They may well have not have had their COVID test or they'd definitely be in contact with someone who's COVID positive. Um, the next group that we would, would, would tend to get would be those who sort of reached three weeks now and they should have been recovering from COVID but they're still not getting better. And these are the ones that we're sort of thinking about, is this long COVID? Um, is, is, is this what their symptoms are related? And this is where we would probably redirect people back to their GPs um, to, to, to engage with the local post-COVID and the long COVID clinics that are beginning to, to, to be set up for rehab. rehab. And then the last category really is the breathless patient. Um, and really thinking about what we tend to say to our doctors is actually you really need to think about um, why has that person's asthma got worse? And this is really where, like in the new onset cases and, and, the, and these cases, you really need to think about their COVID exposure risk is what we call it in our service. Um, have they been shielding? Have they been out and about? We've just recently had some data that actually the supermarkets are a big cause of infection at the moment. Within the first lockdown, they were very strict about the ratios they were having, only allowing people in one at a time. And I remember those long queues that used to happen outside your various supermarket. Um, but they've been slightly less strict, I would have said, at the moment. Um, and certainly there's some slight more risk for people going around the supermarkets. But other ones used to be more occupationally related. 
um, if if they were working within a warehouse where it was difficult to um, to social distance and give that space, um, if if the person has been out to the pub when the pubs and the restaurants were open, um, that would make them more likely to have picked up coronavirus um, and, and like to be more more positive. So I think. It's really key when we think about our COPDs and our asthmatic patients, they may come to you and say, oh, it's my asthma, my asthma's got worse, um, or my COPD's worse, but you need to actually think about why. If they're normally a virally induced asthma, the biggest respiratory virus we've got hanging around us at the moment is coronavirus. And so they probably still ought to be you know, given the advice about isolation and contact um, with other members within the family. Um, I'm just going to talk a little bit more about assessing the breathless patient because as a GP I think that's something that we don't tend to do terribly often in pre-COVID times. There's a really excellent article in the BMJ by Trish Greenhow which talks about assessing breathlessness over the phone and I think that the key part of this is that um, it really provides a little bit of structure for people who are not used to assessing breathing um, and it assesses progression as well because progression is something that's really useful in terms of um, working out where somebody is in the course of the illness. So um, the suggested um, questions from that would be, how is your breathing today? Asking a, a, a patient directly, and they might say, absolutely fine. They might at that stage say that they're problems. Um, but other things that you could um, follow on with would be things like, are you so breathless that you're unable to speak more than a few words? That probably would be obvious if you if you've got into the conversation. Um, are you breathing harder or faster than usual when doing nothing at all? That's a real worry when people are describing that, um, even when they're not walking around, um, that, that certainly is going to make me sit up and listen when at the end of the phone. The other thing is um, to ask, are they doing their normal daily activities? Because if they are still able to pot around the house, you know, make a cup of tea, go up and down the stairs, that's hugely reassuring. That's painting a picture of somebody who's actually coping quite well with their illness. Whereas actually, if they're saying, do you know what, it takes me some time to recover after walking to the bathroom in terms of my breathing, that's a, little, a, a lot more worrying. So other questions that you could ask would be things like, is your breathing faster or slower or the same as normal? Um, what could you do yesterday that you cannot do today? Um, and what makes you breathless now that didn't make you breathless yesterday? If you've gone through those questions, you're gonna have a really good idea about what somebody is, is able to do. And of course, you know, we, we have adapted in primary care um, and we are using things like AccuRx to video um, phone people um, or, or various other similar modalities. So, again, if you can if you can get an idea about what they're able to do, um, sometimes a picture does tell you a thousand words um, and that's really very useful. But um, I think that if you're starting to speak to a lot of COVID um, callers, you'll find that some of them really are quite unwell. And as GPs, I think that quite often we, um, you know, we, we don't need to call ambulances often, quite often we can sort things with advice or medication, but actually with COVID, we're quite limited in, in terms of what we can do. And if somebody is really worryingly breathless, they really do need to get seen really quickly. So we're gonna now talk um, a little bit more about the signs of a sick patient just to elaborate on what we've done. Um, if, if in doubt, basically, you're trying to get to the stage where you can decide, can somebody safely be looking after themselves at home with safety netting advice, or are they ringing alarm bells? Do you want them to, to get seen, um, to get oximetry done? Um, I would always suggest asking people actually what they've got at home. And some people have got quite a lot of kit at home, including, for example, blood pressure machines or saturation monitors. And again, if, you, if you're thinking someone sounds pretty unwell, you can get a normal blood pressure out of them that's going to reassure you a little bit in terms of um you know are, are they um 
collapsing or systemically. So, um, so that can be quite useful. And, and even people without respiratory conditions um, are having SATs monitors. We've had a few presentations within the service from respiratory specialists, and they've advised that actually anything, even bought over the counter, um, bought on the internet, if it's CE marked and it's a finger oximeter, they tend to be fairly reliable. Um, they don't set much store by watch oximetry or um, mobile phone oximetry. I don't think they're validated and they're not reliable. But if somebody has got a CE marked oximeter and is telling you that their SATs are 85, and you've checked simple things, for example, like their hands are not cold um, and they are giving it a few seconds to, to sort of reach a steady state. They're not taking it in the first three seconds that it's gone on the finger. Um, then you can really um, respond to that because that is, is a, a good guide that people are very unwell. Self-examination can sometimes be handy as well. You can time people over the phone, um, just getting them to count the in-breaths or getting somebody else, a partner or, or child who's in the same household to count the in-breaths. So even if you've not got video calling facility, you can still do that. And certainly when you're talking about the oximetries, having no nail varnish, making sure their hands are warm and making sure that the oximetry is done when they're at rest. Um, and there's some information about that in the NHS England resource that we've put here, which it talks about doing home oximetry readings and gives patient advice there. It's a very good leaflet to try and direct patients to. There's a fantastic... So, um, YouTube video as well actually that shows how to use an oximeter um, so there are links to that and um, through that resource too so that's well worth um, demonstrating to somebody um, or, or sending them a link if, if you feel that that would be helpful. Caroline do you want to spend a little time talking through this diagram that's from the COVID-19 remote monitoring guidelines? Yeah, so this is one of the diagrams that's utilised in the new COVID oximetry at home um, service, which I think is certainly was piloted within the in the Wessex area uh, or parts of Hampshire. Um, it's in in a lot of lot of use um, and is gradually being spread over. We've just had a new directive um, and an updated version of the original document that was released from NHS England, and we've included the links with that within within the slide presentations. But essentially, I suppose. What we're trying to do certainly within CCAS and what a lot of GPs will be doing is, is possibly doing that initial triage for patients who haven't necessarily got an oximeter at home. And how do you decide which of those actually need to see um, and which of those actually can be managed at home and which of those do you need to actually send in? Once they have the oximeter, you you know, and, and, and done the oximeter readings, then you're in, you're working on the lower half of the graph. You've got fairly reasonable observations and guidelines that, um, that can tell you where you need to turn people. But how do we decide? And that's those people who are ringing you up. They're greater than day five. They know they're COVID positive or there's a very high likelihood because of their contacts they've been in. How do we decide which of those need to be seen and, and which of those we could actually carry on seeing them at home? So I suppose one of the key things for me here is, is certainly when you're asking about breathlessness questions, is, is what is the rate of progression? Um, and one of those seven questions is, you know, can you do less than you, uh, can you do the same as you were doing yesterday or you, are you able to do less so? Um, and if somebody is deteriorating, and particularly if they're deteriorating from morning to afternoon, I would be much more concerned about them and feel actually I need to know what their oximetry is. We need to get them seen face to face. Other signs that you might be looking forward, and if you look towards the, the left of this graph, they sort of they've 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 put the COVID nineteen symptoms in ordinance of severity. So you may have the patient. A lot of people talk about silent hypoxia. Now, the silent hypoxia is not someone who's 
who, who is just happy, happy, sitting there, um, hypoxic, and then you put an oximeter on them and they suddenly um, seem to have very low saturations. These patients are often ill. Silent hypoxia is just somebody who doesn't seem to have uh, proportional breathless signs of breathlessness associated with their hypoxia. But these people tend to have quite a lot of fatigue. Um, they may have muscle aches, they often have muscle aches, particularly in the back areas. Um, they may be, experience shivering or chill. Um, and this would be really quite alarming, what we call red flag symptoms, where you think actually this person needs assessing in hospital. And the thing about getting them to hospital is because the, they will then do the full screening with a chest x-ray, D-dimers and respiratory bloods, uh, CRP, etc. To, to decide whether they actually need um, oxygen support, continued oxygen support um, and monitoring. Um, if they find that the person's likely got um, changes on their x-ray and they've got SATs um, below whatever their local guideline levels are, um, they will likely start them on dexamethasone. And dexamethasone is probably the only disease modifying um, drug that we have for COVID at the moment. There's the possibility of others coming through, um, but dexamethasone is the key one that's actually managed to change the course of the disease. Um, if you speak, look at some of uh, Matt and Arda Kim's original videos, um, he does some videos, he's the one who sort of was really trying to make the COVID oxygen at home program national. Um, and they have some videos on, on um, from NHS England talking about um, that, that you know, just a 1% drop below a normal SATS level can really significantly affect the mortality of these patients. Um, there is no value in giving um, dexamethasone or steroids at home because actually dexamethasone appears to work better with people who need oxygen, either um, just as free flow oxygen or who are actually being ventilated. It seems to work better in the sicker patient. So if you have severe concerns about your patient, if they're presenting with this myalgia, the shivering or the very severe fatigues, and you can see it in patients, they sort of say to you, I barely get to the bathroom. You know, I can't get myself dressed. Um, I can't get myself to the top of the stairs. Um, they may not be necessarily breathless. They're just too tired or too exhausted to do that. They probably need a face-to-face -face assessment um, within the ED department. And yeah, then, I think, Caroline, I just wanted to pick up on, on some of the things you said, which I think are really useful. Um, sometimes the progression is, is key, but also what stage of the illness are they at? Um, so the traditional time when people can decline is days seven to ten. So that's a particularly worrying patch if you're getting somebody phoning you at that stage. However, we certainly have taken many phone calls on the phone lines from people who are much earlier on in their illness and people who are particularly um, you know, young and fit and healthy. So, you know, you don't have to be somebody who is much older with risk factors in set day seven to ten. It doesn't always fit classically. Do you agree with that, Caroline? Yes, I do. I mean, it generally is the day seven to ten of the more severe and more likely to be ad admitted, um, but the younger ones still probably actually need a bit of a screen as well. And they may well be discharged into the home virtual ward um, and, and, and into that environment. Mm -hmm. But then also we need to sort of think about actually the other, other symptoms and the factors that could be affected. So, you know, are they actually passing urine? Are they able to drink um, sufficiently amounts? Everybody is, is, is advised to drink between six to eight glasses of water to keep themselves well hydrated. But has there been any drop in the urine output? It's a key question to ask about people. Um, and then if they are breathless or they have got a cough, which can be very irritating and quite debilitating. I know I certainly have seen 
um, a patient with with coronavirus it, it felt as if they were going to turn themselves inside out with the vericity of the coughing um, but, you know have they had any hemoptysis hemoptysis is quite quite important and um, the other factors to think about in hypoxia if they're not particularly short of breath is are they getting dizzy um, that that can be a, 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 a sign um, that actually, you know, if they're well hydrated, but they're actually still feeling dizzy when they exert themselves, are they actually hypoxic? Is that is that something we should be concerned about? The other thing is, um, just whilst obviously COVID is top of our, our list of differentials at the moment, obviously people could still end up on the phone with all sorts of other problems. So um, you want to be really careful that you don't miss other serious pathology, such as um, a PE, for example. So you maybe wanted to ask about things like leg swelling. Um, the other thing is in terms of um, trying to quantify whether it could be COVID and how, how bad it could become, you really want to be asking about people's risk factors. So hopefully as a GP, you're gonna have access to their medical record, which will really help you. But you may want to ask people over the phone as well, have you got any other risk factors? You know, is your weight, I'd say to people, is your weight normal? Is it above, uh, uh, above average or below average? Um, and if they say it's above average, you may want to try and calculate over the phone a BMI, because we know that, that a raised BMI can make them more likely to have um, an adverse outcome. The other thing that I do routinely ask everybody um, is what ethnicity they are. And that wouldn't be something that I would usually ask in a GP consultation. But again, we know that um, certain ethnicities seem to have worse outcomes than others. So I think that that's really relevant. And sometimes um, even, even once you've done your assessment over the phone, if they get an extra tick in, in the box of um, an ethnicity that you're more concerned about and, um, and an extra tick in the box of other risk factors such, such as a raised BMI, then that's just raising your index of concern because you're really trying to build a picture. Another factor you can think about is, is, is sometimes we ask people if they've got blue lips, but I tend to, I've avoided that now. I tend to, to go more along the lines of, do your lips look a normal colour for you? Mm -hmm. um, and this will work well with even the BAME community who just say, actually, no, my lips look very much darker. I look quite pale for me. And then you think, actually, I need to, I need to get him looked at. Um, and they might be the ones that you would send to the hot hub if they didn't have any other signs so that the hot hub could decide, actually, did this person need to go further for further investigation or not? Great. Thanks, Caroline. And I suppose oh, I forgot. Sorry, I was just going to say the other factor is is apparently severe headache. If they're hypoxic, a very severe headache um, can be a be a, a cause for concern. So think along those lines as well. So this slide just summarises um, some of the treatments for COVID nineteen that we can do in primary care. And to be honest, there's not a huge amount that we can do in primary care. As Caroline's already said, dexamethasone is not appropriate for us to be prescribing in primary care. That really is a, a hospital-only drug. Um, so what can we do for the cough that's turning them inside out? Um, so simple things, drinking honey and lemon. Um, there are codeine linked to things that they could buy over the counter as well. Um, and uh, paracetamol, ibuprofen. Uh, obviously making sure that you advise people uh, to follow the instructions on the packet because sometimes they can feel really terrible get them to write down when they take their doses because they may not be sleeping at all um, and it can be hard to keep track of, of taking two um, antipyretics. In terms of dizziness um, we don't recommend regularly prescribing perazine. as Caroline said it could be because of the silent hypoxia that they're feeling um, headachey and dizzy so actually make sure that you really assess that symptom thoroughly over the phone. Um, and if they are severely breathless, you're going to be needing to make sure that you get an oxygen reading. Um, so that will be requiring them to be referred onwards or either to a hot hub or elsewhere in order to get further assessment. So some of the things that, so if you say your patient's been um, 
seen by by in the hospital is being screened and they're coming home and they're still getting some episodes of breathlessness. Some of the things that we seem to have found that patients have said that's really helped is having the window open, um, having breathing in the cold air, going out into the cold air. Sometimes people have found that helpful, as well as lying on their front. And, and certainly when I had coronavirus, um, both my husband and I both spent periods where we were just lying on our front if we were feeling a bit breathless. Um, so you know that there are other aspects that you that you can do without necessarily um, providing them with with a uh, prescription. So again, just to spend a bit more time on those really worrying signs. So any kind of confusion, um, that's a really worrying sign. People who don't usually get muddled, who are getting muddled about things, that would really make me want to get them seen. Um, do ask about redu reductions in levels of consciousness because again, you don't want to miss it. Um, and you may want to be sure if you're really concerned about somebody to ask early on in your conversation um, in the same way that when people phone 999, they do those um, initial sort of questions about, you know, is, is the patient awake and breathing? Um, you know, you don't want to get um, too far down the line of talking to a relative if actually the person stopped breathing. And again, that's a really important point to, to speak to the patient. So quite often you'll have husbands, wives, children, whatever, other people in the household phoning for advice. But um, sometimes even a very short conversation with the patient to get consent to continue the conversation with somebody else, if that's what they want, will tell you that this person sounds in extremis. The other thing also is to make sure that you ask some direct questions. So there is an issue that some people I think are sort of um, describing as brain fog, um, you know, brain fog rather than frog, fog, brain fog. Um, in that people are a little bit confused. Now within our service, because we're only doing telephone assessment and we don't know the people, we're often asking people, what's your postcode? And if they're struggling and they're a normal normal adult, you know, sort of young adult, you don't think there's like to be any normal, normally any cognitive problems and they're struggling with their, their postcode um, or some of their details, it does just make make you think, rings a few alarm buzzers thinking, actually, is this person as, as, as with it as I think they are. Um, so I think that's an important soft sign that we can sort of pick up when we're talking to people over the phones or doing a video consultation. Think about the rate of their way they're speaking. Are they pausing a long time before they answer you? It can be difficult in someone you might not know, but if it's one of your patients that you know and you just think, actually this person isn't quite the same, and that's where you can use, you can use um, um, assistance from relatives as well. You could ask them and just say, so how do you think they are? Are they responding normally to you? Do you think there's a change? And if there was a change in the other side of relatives, so I, I, that would be someone I would might send through to a hot hub. But if there are any other concerns, I'd probably send them to hospital. Absolutely. And I think that's really important what you said there. Um, where do you send people on to? You probably want to be thinking about the extent of the assessment that's going to be required overall. And for, for someone who's really sick, you're going to want an x-ray to see if they've got COVID x-ray changes. Um, and so really that kind of person I'd be thinking if I was worried about them over the phone as a GP, I'd be wanting to send them to A&E rather than sending them to a hot hub, which would introduce a delay in the patient journey. So just think about, you know, what, what is it that you want? Are you wanting bloods and things? Are they going to be able to do that at your hot hub? They may be able to do bloods and things at your hot hub, but you probably um, it's worthwhile knowing what you've got locally on the ground, what they can do and what they can't do. And it's very difficult, certainly as GPs, and, 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 and I don't know whether it's a generational thing or not, but often we tend to want to deal with everybody and manage everybody at home and we're resistant to, to send them off to, to hospital and we're resistant to calling ambulances. But I think with COVID-19, 
we need to be reducing our threshold for that. Um, it is important. They've done studies to show that actually people do very well if they get to secondary care and they certainly have that screening. I myself actually going through ED and having those tests done gave me the confidence to manage my COVID-19 episode at home. Um, and and I, I think we should be really be active in actually getting these people seen sooner rather than later. It's, it's not a case of battling on as much as you can and only sending them in when they're very sick. These people need a bit of support earlier. We need to screen out those who need to be in hospital earlier than we have been perhaps doing before. And I think that that's, that is um, a bit different because right in the first wave, you know, everyone was only learning about the illness, but now we know that that early intervention does really save lives. So as Caroline says, if, if, you're, if you're worried or if you're not sure, maybe err on the side of caution because we know that that makes a difference to outcomes. And it's the reason why we've got a lot, you know, proportion wise, we've got less people on ventilators um, now. We're still filling up lots of hospital beds, um, but the proportion that actually going on, on a ventilator seems to be different in the second wave. And I think that's because we're more familiar with the disease and we've got them in there. And we've also got the dexamethasomas obviously is, is assisting us with managing the, the disease. So just a reminder for those of you who, who don't call ambulances regularly, I must admit I've called an awful lot of ambulances in the last nine months. Um, when the operator talks to you over the phone, they're going to be trying to work according to their protocol um, and they, they may be talking to you as a health professional about what category ambulance. So just a reminder that category one, which is the highest category ambulance, is really for things like cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest and acute anaphylaxis. Um, so that is uh, the highest category. Category two is quite often one that we would use for somebody who seems to be exceptionally unwell and very breathless at home with acute COVID. Um, so it would be either category two, if they were slightly less unwell, we'd be using category three. So category two is usually up to 18 minutes. Um, that's the target. And category three can take up to two hours. So there's quite a big difference between the timing of a category two ambulance and a category three ambulance. Um, there's also a category four ambulance, which is a non-urgent ambulance on there too, which can take up to 180 minutes. But I think that the important thing is, particularly at a time when the NHS is very busy, uh, don't just call the ambulance, but make sure you give safety netting advice. Because what do you want the relative or the patient to do if they deteriorate before the ambulance gets there? You don't want them trying to get back through to you. They need to be phoning 999 to tell of a deterioration. So again, real, really clear instructions to the patient and the family about what to do if, if things worsen or what to do if the ambulance doesn't turn up. And again, knowing the average time frame for these categories of ambulances is quite handy because if you're phoning a CAT2 ambulance, you can say to a relative, it, it really should be with you within 18 minutes. And if it isn't, then you need to phone 999 to see what's happened to it. And I think it's important to actually to help the ambulance services out here. So category two is really only for those in a peri-arrest status um, because the category twos are not usually downgraded. If you've got a category three ambulance, they can be diverted to a category two. Um, and certainly providing as much information as you can helps the ambulance clinical desk to help to help manage their priority of ambulances. So the category three, although it says it may take up to two hours, um, the actual target is 40 minutes, of which 90% should arrive within two hours. Unfortunately, with a lot of the pressures, they can be a little bit longer. So that's again where you, it's really important to give appropriate safety netting advice um, to these patients. And be, be quite specific. If, he, if they collapse, if they, you know, if, if you feel they're, they're not responding to you normally, you dial 999. And it's quite important for patients. Patients seem to develop a, a, a sort of 
queue mentality where they feel, oh, well, I'm in the queue and the clinicians know, know, know I'm there and, and they'll get to me when they can. They're all very busy. I don't want to bother them. Um, and it's important you give your patients their permit, the permission to, to, to dial 99 if they need 999 if they need to. Um, you, you need to, in giving robust, very specific safety netting advice, you're giving them permission to do that and to stop them just sitting waiting um, because they think that they're going to get a call. They'll wait for the doctor. So one of the unique challenges with COVID-19 is actually how to get them the medication that, that over the counter you've suggested um, because they're supposed to be isolating and not going out. Um, so have a chat with people. Um, do they have family and friends can help? Do they have a neighbour or somebody who, like that in their road who might be willing to do something for them? Um, quite often people um, could use NHS volunteers or put something on social media saying that they need somebody to collect something from the pharmacy for them. They may well have success. But there are some lesser known schemes, which we're just going to talk through now, which may be handy if you've got a patient at the end of the phone who's struggling to get medication. Um, I certainly didn't know till recently that some of the supermarkets are able to um, deliver over-the-counter medicines, um, Uber Eats and things like that, um, also able to, to deliver vital supplies. Uh, pharmacies can deliver, although obviously not necessarily same day. There are local council schemes that quite often you can Google, so they might be called sort of COVID volunteers or um, COVID support um, emergency telephone numbers, so they may have a local system that they can utilise. Um, so quite a few options there. And of course, there are quite a few um, online pharmacies as well who will be able to um, deliver over-the-counter medication to, to people at home whilst they isolate. So we've um, divided some resources um, into categories. So the first category is resources for GPs. There's obviously a huge amount of stuff out there, but it's a question of knowing where to start, particularly if you're somebody who hasn't been working um, over the last few months and is, is looking for a starting point. Um, we really like the BMJ best practice. Caroline, would you like to have a chat about that? The nice thing about the BMJ best practice, it, it's, it's, um, it's their COVID section is free. To look at so you don't have to be a, a member at all but they've actually now introduced treatment algorithms for people with comorbidities so they have a quite nice little bit where you just tick a button and say yes they've got hypertension or they've got diabetes um and and other conditions um and they will um then then it'll tell you how best to manage these patients whether they've got mild moderate or severe um coronavirus symptoms. Now, obviously, we're not really managing the, the ones with the severe, they're the ones that are in hospital, but for the mild and the, and, and the moderate or the ones you're about to send off to a, a hot tub or if you're dealing with them in, in the hot tub, um, it, it, it helps you sort of managing them, you know, do I have to stop their medications? What are the sick day rules for this this this, this particular condition? Um, it's got links through to there. It's also got a very good um, patient information leaflet for patients. And I'll, I'll quite often say to people on the phone, Google BMJ best practice COVID-19 um, and then go to the patient information leaflet um, as that gives you, uh, uh, it's, it's kept up to date constantly um, and they can, patients can download it, load it and it's very readable. So the second website is one that um, provides summaries of the various sources of advice. So that could be useful as well as a GP. Um, the next slide um, are ones that you may want to patients using your AccuRx service um, or you may have another way of texting your patients but the, the top one is a really fantastic leaflet it was only um, signed off in December last year and it includes um, advice on what to do if you if your oximeter is showing certain thresholds so it tells you when you need to call for help what's an acceptable reading what's not an acceptable reading um, 
The second line down is um, the gov.uk advice, which again, people can access very easily from home. And that has got the answer to a lot of their questions. And um, obviously being aware of practical things that patients might ask you, like where can they get their isolation note? Well, they can get it 111 online. They shouldn't be phoning up their GP just for that. Um, but certainly if somebody is needing a protracted period off, off work, you may at that stage be needing to get involved. Um, there are a couple of other resources that are particularly useful. The top one I find useful for um, when there's one person in household who's unwell, other people who are not unwell, and you're really trying to uh, advise them to eat separately, sleep separately, clean the bathroom um, after using it. This has got a lot more information for people um, on how to keep themselves safe and other people in their home safe. There's uh, the volunteer support number there. There's some NHS mental health support um, about COVID as well. And then there are some long COVID resources here, which you may find helpful. So the Your COVID Recovery is the main NHS hub for resources for patients with long COVID. And they are adding to that over time. So there's a lot more on there than there was when it first came out a few months back. Um, so that could be a really good place um, for people who you're seeing, who, who are just describing as still not being right. They're not acutely unwell, but they're still not right. You may have local referral facilities and long COVID clinics, they are being set up. Um, there's obviously the rapid um, guideline from NICE, which may assist you. There's a lovely patient information leaflet on the Moving Medicine website, um, which has got some really practical suggestions as how to get back to exercise um, if you are somebody who has been significantly unwell um, through COVID. So those are some of the resources that, that I would be sending people towards. Caroline, have you got any others? Well, I, know, I was just going to say it's, it's actually quite important. You reminded me there that um, people who are normal big exercisers should not be doing any form of exercise for at least two weeks after a positive COVID test, even if they haven't had symptoms, or if they've had symptoms for at least a week after the, those symptoms have resolved. Um, it, people are very keen to sort of rush straight back into exercise. And the general rule is that you don't. And there is a really great um, thing that came out of the BMJ last week. Um, on exercise post-COVID. So that's a good resource as well. And we can add that in there on the slides. So that's the end of the presentation that we wanted to um, go through just to cover the main points. But we're very happy, Camilla, to answer any questions that you've got and um, that you think your colleagues might like to know about how our service, CCAS, that's hosted by South Central Ambulance Trust, fits into the rest of the NHS or anything else. Well, thank you both so much. That was a really good comprehensive overview and has answered a lot of my questions and um, made things very clear. And I'm really um, thankful for all the resources that you've added because I think that's, um, that's really helpful. Um, I'm a bit worried about Andy Murray because he's obviously just been um, diagnosed with um, coronavirus and um, the impact on that with his tennis of um, reducing sport after... Um, an, an illness. Um, I had, I, I was interested in what you were saying about lying prone because I also had coronavirus and found the natural um, default is to go into uh, lie in bed and, and in the morning you're feeling a lot worse. So I definitely recommend that patients lie prone and try and sleep on their front. And um, the other thing I was wondering, is there any breathing exercises or sort of breathing rehab resources online that you recommend to people? I don't know if there's any evidence. Well, during the acute illness phase, I must admit, there was that fabulous YouTube video um, that uh, Dr. Munchie, and, and I just tell, tell them, go on YouTube, Google Dr. Munchie's breathing exercises. Mm -hmm. um, and he was an ITU doctor 
who with the um, his one of his ITU nurses explained the sort of exercises that they would give to patients once they'd come off ventilation. And I obviously I did those as well when I was feeling unwell and, 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 and I found them quite helpful. Um, I'm not sure about any other sort of breathing exercises. Sarah, you're, do you have, have anything particular? No, I'm There's not the sure. Homerton. Any... Yeah, oh, sorry, the Homerton was... resources are very good in general. I'm not sure if they've got any specific breathing exercises, but there's certainly a lot of information in the pack that's really accessible to the public. Um, and I'm quite impressed by that. The, the Your COVID um, Recovery website also has a section on breathing. Um, I think a lot of the breathing and the sort of sighing breathing that people, it's, it's like this dysfunctional breathing that people can get. They're not actually hypoxic. Um, you know, after after the disease, but there's there's some exercise thinking about that, um, and being very careful not to sort of. If, it's about being calm, really. I think you know, just being careful to sort of try and be, get people to be calm. I I sometimes recommend um, with the long COVID patients if they start start doing some sort of something along the line, one of the meditation apps, Headspace or Balance is is, is another one where you're just doing slow breathing, and then another report as some people say the square breathing where you're breathing in for four seconds holding for four seconds and then um, breathing out for four seconds um, and then pausing can, can be helpful when people are feeling uncomfortable in the sort of dysfunctional phase afterwards. Fantastic thank you and I wonder there's been quite a lot of information in the press about vitamin d and recommendations that everyone should be taking an over-the-counter supplement certainly in the winter months and if you're high risk all year round is, are there supplements that you recommend, such as vitamin D, zinc and vitamin C? Well, some people are suggesting vitamin C and, and, and adding them in. The, the vitamin D, I know, I mean, a, a lot of my colleagues are taking well above um, the, 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 the recommended amount, but we're only officially allowed to recommend the 400 micrograms, which mm. probably isn't enough for the main population. Mm. Um, so, so. I, we need to sort of be thinking about that. It hasn't really, it's been shown to, to it's not really been shown in the active treatment to be of any valuable value, but those people who seem to have higher vitamin D levels um, or levels with, you know, in the high end of the normal range seem to do better when they have the disease. So it's not about acutely treating someone, it's about making sure everybody is at least following the, the, the current national guidelines and taking some sort of supplement which every one of us should be doing between October and March every year. Fantastic thank you. Um, I think I'm going to wrap up there I think that I, I am very impressed by all the information you've imparted and I will certainly be using that going forward into practice and I think with AccuRx there's no excuse not to sort of send links with regards to safety netting information I'm very pleased that they've included how to sort of say um, how to self-isolate at home because I think there was a lot of ignorance, certainly in friends and family that I know, on self-isolating in a separate bedroom, separate bathroom, not cooking and eating together, etc., which reduces household transmission. Um, so, and I also liked your information of reassuring patients to call 999 if appropriate, because as you say, people do sit there and wait in a queue, think they're being seen to and will wait um, for an inappropriate amount of time. So I think that's a very useful bit of information. Thank you. Um, so thank you both very much. Really, really useful talk. Um, please, if you've found this interesting, direct colleagues to this um, video, we're also following up with another video, which is going to be a live webinar on the 3rd of February, 
running from 1.30 to 2.30 if anyone is interested and that will be advertised on the Wessex LMC site and if you're watching this afterwards it will be recorded and you can access it um, at a later date and that's going to be an hour-long webinar covering the COVID oximetry at home service it will also cover the long um, COVID service and it will also have a view on COVID from a paediatric consultant perspective. So that should be quite interesting as well. Um, we're going to make this into a podcast so both of those webinars and videos will be available from the LMC podcast um, channel as well. So if you haven't subscribed to that there's lots of good information on that as well. So thank you very much especially to Caroline and Sarah and um, we will sign off. Thank you. Thanks, Camilla.